Lectures on Ancient Philosophy by Manley P. Hall Read by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes Preface In spite of its rather unglamorous title, Lectures on Ancient Philosophy has been continuously in print since 1929, and the new edition is urgently required. It has been always my effort to present the essential principles of philosophy in a manner understandable to all thoughtful persons. While gathering material for my encyclopedic outline, it was necessary to explore many areas of the esoteric traditions. All of the world's beliefs and doctrines were intended to assist individuals in the enrichment of their daily living. There is no religion or philosophy that does not emphasize the improvement of personal conduct. It seemed appropriate, therefore, that these aspects of our research should be made available to all who might benefit from them. Having set forth the symbols of ancient wisdom, it seemed advisable to interpret these symbols as they apply to the enlargement of human understanding and the enrichment of individual character. In this volume, we also include Oriental teachings which assist us in clarifying doctrines of worldwide significance. There is ample precedence for this in the records of antiquity which prove beyond doubt that Eastern truths helped to enrich Western beliefs long before the beginning of the Christian era. There is considerable confusion in matters of terminology. Different teachings have divergent definitions which are apt to prove confusing. Therefore, the definitions of such basic terms, spirit, soul, mind, wisdom, knowledge, insight, and understanding have been enlarged. Unless definitions are mutually acceptable, discussion is comparatively useless. Most of these definitions have been derived from reliable and respectable sources of ancient scholarship. We claim no originality, nor are we indebted to mysterious sources for our beliefs. Every effort has been made to perpetuate the knowledge which has descended to us from sages of earlier times. However, more recent findings are also included where they seem to contribute useful insights in obscure matters. The information set forth in this book should be useful to any person interested in comparative religion. In my earlier days, this was a small but dedicated group, receiving very little public encouragement. In recent years, however, there is a much greater interest and emphasis upon the spiritual convictions of Oriental peoples. Perhaps the recognition of Asiatic art has made it desirable to understand the motives which inspired the productions of the sacred symbolism of Asia. A larger literature is also available, and famous museums proudly displayed collections, which a century ago would have been considered as productions of heathenism. The discussion of the moral arithmetic of Pythagoras is a gentle introduction to the philosophic arithmetic of Theon of Smyrna and leads immediately to an inspiring contemplation of universal mysteries. It also helps us to appreciate the debt that is owed to the wisdom of the Greeks and Egyptians and the mathematical speculations of Oriental sages. There's no way in which to more rapidly release our own internal potentials than through the discovery of the wonders of the universal plan and the parts that each of us must play in the perfection of our world. The discussion of reincarnation in this book should remove all reasonable doubt concerning the benevolence of providence. Rebirth does not go on forever, as in a tedium of crime and punishment. 
It is a constant opportunity to grow through the improvement of character and the gentle service to those in need of our sympathy and insight. A small section of this book is devoted to the solution of world conflicts. The labors of righteousness are not in vain, and is ordained beyond human control that we shall build a better world than we know today, and that the individual shall unfold from within himself all that is necessary to his citizenship in the divine commonwealth. This book was written over 50 years ago. Since then, my studies have continued, sustained by a wide variety of constructive experiences. I still firmly believe the basic teachings of this volume and have found no reasons to modify or change the principles contained therein. This new edition, therefore, is not a rewriting, merely a reprinting, and I trust it may continue to serve the purpose for which it was originally intended. Manley P. Hall, Los Angeles, California, August 1984 there is nothing better than those mysteries by which, from a rough and fierce life, we are polished to gentleness and softened. And initia, as they are called, we have thus known as the beginnings of life and truth. Not only have we received from them the doctrine of living with happiness, but even of dying with a better hope. Cicero Preface to the First Edition Although complete in itself, this book is primarily designed to complement and amplify the larger volume on symbolical philosophy published last year. During the spring and fall of 1928, I delivered two series of lectures on symbolism and the ancient mysteries, one in San Francisco and the other in Los Angeles. Two groups largely composed of subscribers to an encyclopedic outline of Masonic, Kabbalistic, and Rosicrucian symbolic philosophy. These lectures were carefully taken down in shorthand and form the basis of the present work. A considerable portion of my larger book is devoted to the rituals and figures of the Greek mysteries, and this treatise is an effort to clarify the subject of classical pagan metaphysics. In his Miscellanies, published at the beginning of the last century, Thomas Taylor, the eminent Platonist, predicted that the sublime theology, which was first obscurely promulgated by Orpheus, Pythagoras, and Plato, and was afterwards perspicuously unfolded by their legitimate disciples, a theology which, though it may be involved in oblivion and barbarous and derided in impious ages, will again flourish for very extended periods, through all the infinite revolutions of time. Our civilization has not yet learned to value appreciation for the beautiful as the very foundation of an enduring culture. Unless we respond to the harmonious, the elegant, the symmetrical, and the rhythmic, we are recreant to past good, a menace to present integrity, and an obstacle to future effort. This truth is well made in the merchant of Venice, the man that hath no music in himself nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. For lack of aesthetics, man lives the life of a Caliban, and in death receives the reward of the Therosites. It is not enough that our codes be true, they must also be beautiful. If learning does not teach us to love, we learn without understanding. We have shackled the titans and bound the elements to our service. Like proud Bellerophon, we have bridled Pegasus, 
but already the gadfly of Zeus is at work. By concentrating all our energies upon temporal concerns, we have builded an empire, moving each stone into place at terrific cost. We have heaped up institutions as the pharaohs piled up pyramids. Yet our monuments, like those along the Nile, shall become the tombs of their own builders. We have paid a frightful price for our boasted success, for our strength has taught us to hate, our power to kill, and our thought to reason away our souls. We must seek for that sufficient code which guided the wise through every generation. We must again establish those perfect mysteries through which alone, as Plato declared in the Phaedrus, man becomes truly perfect. Ares was burnt up by his own flame, and his host of evil spirits consumed with him. Man, tired of vain wrangling and contending for power, longs for those quiet groves where olden sages communed with their familiars. Neoplatonism forms the basis for this exposition. Never in the history of metaphysics since that great Alexandrian day has the mind of man contemplated so rationally and lucidly the riddle of abiding destiny. The fruitage of noble endeavor can never die, nor is truth to be lightly cast aside. Unmoved by the calumny of ungrateful ages and the anathemas of a bigoted theology, the Platonic philosophers sit upon their golden thrones, awaiting with philosophic patience the day when an unbelieving world shall comprehend. Manly Palmer Hall, Los Angeles, California, June 1, 1929 the voice of the whole world. But since the generated world is a collective whole, if we apply the ears of our intellect to the world we shall perhaps hear it thus addressing us, there is no doubt but I was produced by divinity, from whence I am formed perfect, composed from all animals, entirely sufficient to myself, and destitute of nothing, because all things are contained in my ample bosom, the nature of all generated beings, gods visible and invisible, illustrious race of daemons, the noble army of virtuous souls, and men rendered happy by wisdom and virtue. Nor is the earth alone adorned with an endless variety of plants and animals, nor does the power of universal soul alone diffuse itself to the sea and become bounded by the circumfluent waters. While the wide expanse of air and ether is destitute of life and soul, the celestial spaces are filled with illustrious souls, supplying life to the stars and directing the revolutions in everlasting order. And two, that the celestial orbs, in imitation of intellect which seeks after nothing external, are wisely agitated in a perpetual circuit around the central sun. Besides, whatever I contain desires good, all things collectively considered, and particulars according to their peculiar ability for that general soul by which I am enlivened, and the heavens, the most illustrious of my parts, continually depend on good for support, together with the gods which reign in my parts, every animal and plant, and whatever I contain which appears destitute of life. While some things are seen participating of being alone, others of life and others besides this are indeed with sentient powers. Some possess the still higher faculty of reason, and lastly others are all life and intelligence. For it is not proper to require everywhere equal things among such as are unequal, nor to expect that the fingers should see 
but to assign this as the province of the eye, while another purpose is desired in the finger, which can, I think, be no other than it remains as a finger and performs its peculiar office. Plotinus, on Providence. Chapter 1. The Nature of the Absolute. To define adequately the nature of the Absolute is impossible, for it is everything in its eternal, undivided, and unconditioned state. In ancient writings, it is referred to as the nothing and the all. No mind is capable of visualizing an appropriate symbolic figure of the Absolute. Of all the symbols devised to represent its eternal and unknowable state, a clean, blank sheet of paper is the least erroneous. The paper being blank represents all that cannot be thought of, all that cannot be seen, all that cannot be felt, and all that cannot be limited by any tangible function of consciousness. The blank paper represents measureless, eternal, unlimited space. No created intelligence has ever plumbed its depths. No god has ever scaled its heights, nor shall mortal or immortal being ever discover the true nature of its substance. From it all things come, to it all things return, but it neither comes nor goes. Figures and symbols are pollutions drawn upon the unblemished surface of the paper. The symbols, therefore, signify the conditions that exist upon the face of space, or, more correctly, which are produced out of the substance of space. The blank sheet being emblematic of the all, each of the diagrams drawn upon it signifies some fractional phase of the all. The moment the symbol is drawn upon the paper, the paper loses its perfect and unlimited blankness. As the symbols represent the creative agencies and substances, the philosophers have declared that when the parts of existence come into manifestation, the perfect wholeness of absolute being is destroyed. In other words, the forms destroy the perfection of the formlessness that preceded them. Symbolism deals with universal forces and agencies. Each of these forces and agencies is an expression of space. Because space is the ultimate of substance, the ultimate of force, and the sum of them both. Nothing exists except it exists in space. Nothing is made except it is made of space. In Egypt, space is called tat. Space is the perfect origin of everything. It is not God. It is not nature. It is not man. It is not the universe. All these exist in space and are fashioned out of it, but space is supreme. Space and absolute spirit are one. Space and absolute matter are one. Therefore, space, spirit, and matter are one. Spirit is the positive manifestation of space, and matter is the negative manifestation of space. Spirit and matter exist together in space. Space, spirit, and matter are the first trinity, with space, the Father, Spirit, the Son, and matter, the Holy Ghost. Space, though actually undivided, becomes, through hypothetical division, absolute, or ultimate, spirit. Absolute or ultimate intelligence, and absolute or ultimate matter. The most primitive and fundamental of all symbols is the dot. Place a dot in the center of the sheet, and what does it signify? Simply the all considered as the one, or first point. 
Unable to understand the absolute, man gathers its incomprehensibility mentally to a focal point, the dot. The dot is the first illusion because it is the first departure from things as they eternally are. The blank sheet of paper. There is nothing immortal but space. Nothing eternal but space. Nothing without beginning or end but space. Nothing unchangeable but space. Everything but space either grows or decays, because everything that grows, grows out of space, and everything that decays, decays into space. Space alone remains. Philosophically, space is synonymous with self, spelled with a capital S, because it is not the inferior or more familiar self. It is the self which man through all eternity struggles to attain. Therefore, the true self is as abstract as the blank sheet of paper, and only he who can fathom the nature of the blank paper can discover self. The dot may be likened to spirit. The spirit is self with the loss of limitlessness, because the dot is bound by certain limitations. The dot is the first illusion of the self, the first limitation of space, even as spirit is the first limitation of self. The dot is life localized as a center of power. The blank paper is life unlimited. According to philosophy, the dot must sometime be erased, because nothing but the blank paper is eternal. The dot represents a limitation, for the life that is everywhere becomes the life that is somewhere. Universal life becomes individualized life and ceases to recognize its kinship with all being. After the dot is placed on the paper, it can be rubbed out and the white paper restored to its virgin state. Thus, the white paper represents eternity and the dot time, and when the dot is erased, time is dissolved back into eternity, for time is dependent upon eternity. Therefore, in ancient philosophy, there are two symbols, the nothing and the one, the white paper and the dot. Creation traces its origin from the dot the primitive sea, the egg laid by the white swan in the field of space. If existence be viewed from the self downward into the illusion of creation, the dot is the first or least degree of illusion. On the other hand, if existence be viewed from the lower or illusionary universe, upward toward reality, the dot is the greatest conceivable reality. The least degree of physical impermanence is the greatest degree of spiritual permanence. That which is most divine is least mortal. Thus, in the moral sense, the greatest degree of good is the least degree of evil. The dot, being most proximate to perfection, is the simplest and therefore the least imperfect of all symbols. From the dot issues forth a multitude of other illusions ever less permanent. The dot, or sacred island, is the beginning of existence, whether that of a universe or a man. The dot is the germ raised upon the surface of infinite duration. The potentialities signified by the blank paper are manifested as active potencies through the dot. Thus, the limitless absolute is manifested in a limited way. When considering his own divine nature, a man always thinks of his spirit as the first and greatest part of himself. He feels that his spirit is his real and permanent part. To the ancients, however, the individualized spirit, to which is applied the term I, was itself a little germ floating upon the surface of absolute life. This idea is beautifully brought out in the teachings of the Brahmins, Buddhists, and Vedantists. 
The nirvana of atheistic Buddhism is achieved through the reabsorption of the individualized self into the universal self. In Sir Edwin Arnold's Light of Asia, the thought is summed up thus, Om Mani Padmi Om. The daybreak comes and the dewdrop slips back into the shining sea. The dewdrop is the dot, the sea the blank paper. The dewdrop is the individualized spirit or I, the blank paper that self which is all, and that the achievement of nirvana, the lesser mingles with the greater. Immortality is achieved, for that which is impermanent returns to the condition of absolute permanence. The dot, the line, and the circle are the supreme and primary symbols. The dot is spirit, and its symbol in the Chaldaic Hebrew, the yod, is actually a seed or spermatozoan, a little comma with a twisting tail representing the germ of the not-self. In its first manifestation, the dot elongates to form the line. The line is a string of dots made up of germ lives, the monadic lives of Leibniz. From the seed growing in the earth comes the sprig, the line. The line, therefore, is the symbol of the dot in growth or motion. The sun is a great dot, a monad of life, and each of its rays a line, its own active principle and manifestation. The key thought is, the line is the motion of the dot. In the process of creation, all motion is away from self. Therefore, there is only one direction in which the dot can move. In the process of return to the perfect state, all motion is toward self, and through self to the universal self. Involution is activity outward from self. Evolution is activity inward toward self. Motion away from self brings a decrease in consciousness and power. Motion toward self brings a corresponding increase in consciousness and power. The farther the light ray travels from its source, the weaker the ray. The line is the outpouring of natural impulse of life to expand. It may seem difficult at first to imagine the line as a symbol of general expansion, but it is simply emblematic of motion away from self, the dot. The dot moving away from self projects the line. The line becomes the radius of an imaginary circle, and this circle is the circumference of the powers of the central dot. Hypothetically, every sun has a periphery where its rays end, every human life has a periphery where its influence ceases, every human mind a periphery beyond which it cannot function, and every human heart a periphery beyond which it cannot feel. Somewhere there is a limit to the scope of awareness. The circle is the symbol of this limit. It is the symbol of the vanishing point of central energy. The dot symbolizes the cause, the line, the means, and the circle, the end. The Ein Sof of the Hebrew Kabbalists is equivalent to the absolute. The Jewish mystics employed the closed eye to suggest the same symbolism as that of the blank sheet of paper. The inscrutable nothing conveyed to the mind by the closing of the eyes suggests the eternal, unknowable, and indefinable nature of perfect being. These same Kabbalists called spirit the dot, the opened eye, because looking away from itself, the ego, or I am, beholds the vast panorama of things which together compose the illusionary sphere. However, when this same objective eye is turned inward to the contemplation of its own cause, it is confronted by a blankness which defies penetration. Only that thing which is permanent is absolutely real. 
Hence that unmoved, eternal condition so inadequately symbolized by the blank sheet of paper is the only absolute reality. In comparison to this eternal state, forms are an ever-changing phantasmagoria, not in the sense that forms do not exist, but rather that they are of minor significance when compared to their ever-enduring source. While through lack of adequate terminology it is necessary to approach a definition of the absolute from a negative point of view, the blank sheet of paper signifies not emptiness but an utter and incomprehensible fullness when an attempt is made to define the indefinable. Therefore, the blank paper represents that space which contains all existence in a potential state. When the material universe, whether the zodiac, the stars, or the multitude of suns dotting the firmament, comes into manifestation, all of its parts are subject to the law of change. Sometime every sun will grow cold. Sometime every grain of cosmic dust will blossom forth as a universe, and sometime vanish again. With the phenomenal creation comes birth, growth, decay, and the multifarious laws which have dominion over and measure the span of ephemerality. Omar Khayyam, with characteristic oriental fatalism, writes, One thing is certain, and the rest is lies. The flower that once has blown forever dies. The illusions of diversity, form, place, and time are classed by the Orientals under the general term Maya. The word Maya signifies the great sea of shadows, the sphere of things as they seem to be as distinguished from the blank piece of paper, which represents the one and only thing, as it eternally is. The mothers of the various world saviors generally bear names derived from the word Maya, as, for example, Mary, for the reason that the various redeeming deities signify realization born out of illusion, or wisdom rising triumphant from the tomb of ignorance. Philosophic realization must be born out of the realization of illusion. Consequently, the savior gods are born out of Maya and rise through many tribulations into the light of eternity. The keys to all knowledge are contained in the dot, the line, and the circle. The dot is universal consciousness, the line is universal intelligence, and the circle is universal force. The threefold unknowable cause of all knowable existence. The three hypostasis of Atma. In man the spirit is represented by the dot and conscious activity, or intelligence by the line. Conscious activity is the key to intelligence, because consciousness belongs to the sphere of the dot and activity to the sphere of the circle. The center and the circumference are thus blended in the connecting line, conscious activity or intelligence. The circle is the symbol of body and body is the limit of the radius of the activity of mind power pouring out of the substance of consciousness. In ancient philosophy, the dot signifies truth, reality, and whatever form it may take. The line is the motion of the fact and the circle is the symbol of the form or figure established in the inferior or material space by these superphysical activities. Take, for example, a blade of grass. Its form is simply the effect of certain active agents upon certain passive substances. The physical blade of grass is really a symbol of a degree of consciousness or a combination of cosmic activities. 
All forms are but geometric patterns, being the reactions set up in matter by mysterious forces working in the causal spheres. Conscious activity working upon or brooding over matter creates form. Matter is not form because matter, like space, of which it is the negative expression, is universally disseminated, but, as stated in the ancient doctrine, the activity of life upon and through its substances curdles, organizes matter so that it assumes certain definite forms or bodies. These organisms thus caused by bringing the elements of matter into intelligence and definite relationships are held together by the conscious agent manipulating them. The moment this agent is withdrawn, the process of disintegration sets in. Disintegration is the inevitable process of returning artificial compounds to their first simple state. Disintegration may be further defined as the urge of heterogeneous parts to return to their primitive homogeneity. In other words, the desire of creation to return to space. When the forms have been reabsorbed into the vast sea of matter, they are then ready to be picked up by some other phase of the creative agencies and molded afresh into vehicles for the material expression of divine potentialities. In its application to the divisions of human learning, the dot is the proper symbol of philosophy in that philosophy is the least degree of intellectual illusion. It is not to be inferred that philosophy is absolute truth, but rather that it is the least degree of mental error, since all other forms of learning contain a greater percentage of fallacy. Nothing that is sufficiently tangible to be susceptible of accurate definition is true in the absolute sense. But philosophy, transcending the limitations of the form world, achieves more in its investigation of the nature of being than does any other man-conceived discipline. The more complex the form, the farther removed it is from its source. As more marks are placed upon the white sheet of paper, a picture is gradually created which may become so complicated that the white paper itself is entirely obscured. Thus, the more diversified the creations, the less the creator is discernible. Taking up the least possible space upon the paper, the dot detracts the least from the perfect expanse of the white sheet. Philosophy per se is the least confusing method of approaching reality. When less accurate systems are employed, a cobweb of contending and confusing complexities is spread over the entire surface of the blank paper, hopelessly entangling the thinker in the maze of illusion. As the dot cannot retire behind itself to explore the nature of the paper upon which it is placed, so no philosophy can entirely free itself from the involvements of mind. As man, however, must have some code by which to live, some system of thought which will give him at least an intellectual concept of ultimates, the wisest of all ages have contributed the fruitage of their transcendent genius to the great human need. Thus philosophy came into being. Like the dot, philosophy is an immovable body. Its essential nature never changes. When the element of change is introduced into philosophy, it descends to the level of theology. Or rather, it is involved and distorted by the disciplines of theology. Theology is a motion, a mystical gesture, as it were. It is not the dot moving away from itself to form the line. Theology is not a fixed element like philosophy. It is a mutable element, subject to numberless vicissitudes. Theology is emotional, changeable, 
violent, and at periodic intervals bursts forth in many forms of irrational excess. Theology occupies a middle ground between materiality and true illumined spirituality, which transcending theology becomes a comprehension, in part at least, of divine concerns. As has already been suggested, the line is the radius of an imaginary circle, and when this circle is traced upon the paper, we have the proper symbol of science. Science occupies the circumference of the sphere of self. The savant gropes in that twilight where life is lost in form. He is therefore unfitted to cope with any phase of life or knowledge which transcends the plane of material things. The scientist has no comprehension of an activity independent of and disassociated from matter. Hence, his sphere of usefulness is limited to the lower world and its phenomena. The physical body of what man calls knowledge is science. The emotional body, theology, and the mental and supermental bodies, natural and mystical philosophy respectively. The human mind ascends sequentially from science through theology to philosophy, as in ancient days it descended from divine philosophy through spiritual theology, the condition of material science which it now occupies. Consider the great number of people who are now leaving the church at the behest of science. Most of these individuals declare their reason for dissenting to the dictates of theology is that the dogma of the church has proved to be philosophically and scientifically unsound. The belief is quite prevalent that nearly all scientists are agnostics, if not atheists, because they refuse to subscribe to the findings of early theologians. Thus, the mind must descend from credulity to absolute incredulity before it is prepared to assume the onus of individual thinking. On the other hand, the scientist who has really entered into the spirit of his labors has found God. Science has revealed to him a super-theology. It has discovered the God of the swirling atoms, not a personal deity, but an all-permeating, all-powerful, impersonal creative agent, akin to the absolute being of occult philosophy. Thus, the little tin god on his golden throne falls to make way for an infinite creative principle, which science vaguely senses and which philosophy can reveal in fuller splendor. The primitive symbols now under discussion bring to mind the subject of alphabets. The ancient alphabet of wisdom is symbolism, and all the figures used in this supreme alphabet are taken out of the dot, the line, and the circle. In other words, they are made up of various combinations of these elementary forms. Even the Arabic numerical systems and the letters of the English alphabet are compounded from these first three figures. In Oriental mysticism, there are certain objects considered peculiarly appropriate for subjects of meditation. One of the most important of the native drawings is that of a lotus bud carrying in its heart the first letter of the Sanskrit alphabet, a letter usually made resplendent by gold leaf. This letter, as the first of the alphabet, is employed to direct the mind of the devotee toward all things which are first, especially universal self, which is the first of all being and from which all nature emerged, as all the letters are presumed to have come forth from the first letter of the alphabet. Thus, from one letter issue all letters, and from a comparatively small number of letters an infinite diversity of words, these words being the sound symbols which man has employed to designate the diversified genera of the mundane creation. The words were originally designed as sound names, 
and were so closely related to the objects upon which they were conferred that by an analysis of the word, the mystical nature of the object could be determined. St. Irenaeus describes the Greek cosmological man as bearing upon his body the letters of the Greek alphabet. The sacredness of the letters is also emphasized in the New Testament, where Christ is referred to as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. The letters of the alphabet are those sacred symbols, through the combinations of which is created an emblem for every thought, every form, every element, and every condition of material existence. Like the very illusional world whose phenomena they catalog, words are slayers of the real, and the more words used, the less of the nature of reality remains. In the introduction to the secret doctrine, H.P. Blavatsky gives several examples of the ancient symbolic alphabets in which the mystery teachings are preserved. Writing was originally reserved for the perpetuation of the ancient wisdom. Today, the mysteries still have their own language undefiled by involvement in the commercial and prosaic life of the unillumined. The language of the initiates is called the senzar and consists of certain magical hieroglyphical figures by which the wise men of all lands communicated with each other. In the primordial symbols of the dot, the line, and the circle are also set forth the mysteries of the three worlds. The dot is symbolic of heaven, the line of earth, and the circle of hell, the three spheres of Christian theology. Heaven is represented by the dot because it is the first world or foundation of the universe. In its mystical interpretation, the word heaven signifies a heaved up or convoluted area and may be interpreted to mean that which is raised above or elevated to a state of first dignity. In a similar manner, the origin of the word salvation may be traced to saliva though the kinship of the two words has long been ignored. Thus, salvation signifies the process of mixing gross substance with a spiritual fluidic essence which renders it cosmically digestible and assimilable. Heaven is a figure of the superior state or condition of power, and consequently is the proper symbol of the supreme part of the deity out of whose substances, or more correctly, essences, the lesser universe is composed. Heaven is the plane of the spiritual nature of God, earth the plane of the material nature of God, and hell that part of existence in which the nature of God, or good, is least powerful, the outer circumference of deity. The Scandinavian Helheim, the land of the dead, is a dark and cold sphere where the fires of life burn so low that it seemed as though they might at any moment flicker out. Thus, hell may be defined as the place where the light fails or in which divine intelligence is so diluted by matter as to be incapable of controlling the manifestations of force. In the ancient Greek system of thought, Hades, or the underworld, simply signifies the physical universe in contradistinction to the spiritualized and illumined superior worlds. The Greeks conceived the physical universe to be that part of creation in which the light of God is most obscured and darkness not as primordial reality, but rather the absence of divine light. Darkness in this sense represents the primitive darkness, as distinguished from the darkness of the absolute, which includes the nature of light within its own being. So-called physical life begins at the point where matter dominates and inhabits the manifestations of energy and intelligence. 
Spirit, so-called, is only one-fifth as active in the physical world as it is in its own plane of unobstructive expression. Therefore, the physical plane is simply a sphere in nature, wherein are blended four-fifths of inertia and one-fifth of activity. This does not mean that the inhabitants of this sphere are composed four-fifths of material substances, but rather that the greater part of their spiritual natures can find no medium of expression, and consequently are latent. Thus the spiritual nature signified by the dot is enclosed or imprisoned within matter signified by the circle, the result being the various ensouled forms evolving through the material sphere. It may be well to summarize in the simple terminology of the Alexandrian Neoplatonists, to whom the modern world is indebted for nearly all the great fundamentals of philosophy. If you will turn to the diagram at the beginning of this chapter, you will note three circles in a vertical column, and each horizontally trisect and overlapped. The upper circle signifies the power of the dot, the central circle the power of the line, and the lower circle the power of the circumference. Each of these circles contains its own trinity of potencies, which were called by the Chaldeans the Father, the Power, and the Mind. The three circles each trisected give nine hypothetical panels, or levels which signified the months of the prenatal epoch and also the philosophical epoch, as given in the nine degrees of the Eleusinian mysteries. By this symbolism is revealed much of the sacredness attached to the number nine. By the method of overlapping, however, the nine is reduced to seven, the latter number constituting the rungs of the Mithraic or philosophic ladder of the gods, the links of the golden chain connecting absolute unity above or within with absolute diversity below or without. The first trinity, the upper circle, consists of God, the Father, and the nature of his triple profundity. The second trinity, the middle circle, God the Son in his triple sphere of intellection. The third trinity, the lower circle, God the Holy Spirit, the formator with his formative triad, which is the foundation of the world. God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Christian triad, is synonymous with Jehovah, the racial God of the Jews, Shiva, the destroyer, creator of the Hindus, and Osiris, the Egyptian God of the underworld, a study of the form and symbols of Osiris reveals that the lower portion of his body is swathed in mummy wrappings, leaving only his head and shoulders free. In his helmet, Osiris wears the plumes of the law and in one hand clasps the three scepters of the underworld. The anubis-headed staff, the shepherd's crook, and the flail. As the god of the underworld, Osiris has a body composed of death, the material sphere, and a living head rising out of it into a more permanent sphere. This is Jehovah, the Lord of form, whose body is a material sphere ruled over by death, but who himself, as a living being, rises out of the dead, not self, which surrounds him. In India, Shiva, it is often shown with his body a peculiar bluish-white color. This is the result of smearing his person with ashes and soot, ashes being the symbol of death. Shiva is not only a destroyer in that he breaks up old forms and orders, but he is a creator in that. Having dissolved an organism, he rearranges its parts and thus forms a new creature. As the bull was sacred to Osiris, was offered and sacrificed to Jehovah, and was also a favorite form assumed by the god Jupiter, consider the legend of Europa, so Nandi is the chosen Vahan of Shiva. 
Shiva riding the bull signifies death enthroned upon, supported by and moving in harmony with law, for the bull is the proper symbol of the immutability of divine procedure. It is now in order to consider the subject of recapitulation. The vision of Ezekiel intimates that creation consists of wheels within wheels, the lesser recapitulating in miniature the activities of the greater. In the diagram under consideration, it is evident that by trisecting each of the smaller worlds or circles, they are capable of division according to the same principle that holds good in connection with the three major circles. Thus, as the first large circle itself is synonymous with the dot, so the upper panel of each of the trisected circles is also symbolic of the dot. Hence, the upper panel of each circle is its spiritual part, the center panel its intellective or mediatory part, and the lower panel its material or inferior part. The entire lower circle ruled over by Zeus was designated by the Greeks as the world because it was wholly concerned with the establishment and generation of substances. The upper panel of the inferior world, partaking of the same analogy as the first world or upper circle, which it recapitulates in part, is termed the spirit of the world. The central panel, likewise recapitulating the center circle, becomes the mind or soul of the world, and the lower panel, recapitulating the lower circle, the body or form of the world. Thus, spirit consists of a trinity of spirit, mind, and body in a spiritual state, mind of a spirit, mind, and body in a mental state, and form or body of a spirit, mind, and body in a material state. While Zeus is the god of form, he manifests as a trinity, his spiritual nature bearing the name Zeus. The intellective nature, soul, or mediatory nature of Zeus is termed Poseidon and his lower or objective material manifestation, Hades. As each of the Hindu gods possessed a Shakti, or a feminine counterpart signifying their energies, so Zeus manifests his potentialities through certain attributes. To these attributes were assigned personalities, and they became companion gods with him over his world. The Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades triad of the Greeks is the Jupiter, Neptune, and Pluto triad of the Romans. Jupiter may be considered synonymous with the spiritual nature of the sun, which, according to the ancients, has a threefold nature symbolic of the threefold creator of the world. The vital energy pouring from the sun and one of its manifestations becomes Neptune, the lord of the hypothetical sea of subsolar space. In Neptune, we have a parallel with the hypothetical ether of science, the super-atmospheric air which is the vehicle of solar energy. Pluto becomes the actual gross chemical Earth, and his abode is presumed to be in dark, subterranean caverns where he sits upon his ancient throne in impenetrable and interminable gloom. The analogy to the dot, the line, and the circle again appears. Jupiter is the dot, Neptune the line, and Pluto the circle. Thus, the life body of the Sun is Jupiter, the light body of the Sun, Neptune and the fire body of the sun, Pluto, ruling his inferno. It should be continually borne in mind that we are not referring to great universal realities, but simply to those phases of cosmogony directly concerned with matter, which is the lowest and most impermanent part of creation. Over this inferior world with its form and its formative agents sits Jupiter, lord of death, generator of evil, 
the demiurgus and world formator, who with his 12 titanic monads, the Olympic pantheon, builds, preserves, and ultimately annihilates those things which he fashions in the outer sea of divine privation. It is noteworthy that the astronomical symbol of the sun should be the dot in a circle, for as can be deduced from the subject matter of this lecture, the dot, the circle, and the hypothetical connecting line give a complete key to the actual nature of the solar orb. When Jupiter or Jehovah is called the Lord of the Sun, it does not necessarily mean the Sun which is the ruler of the solar system. It means any one of the millions of universal suns which are functioning upon the plane or level of a solar orb. Jupiter manifests himself as a mystical energy which gives crops, perpetuates life, and bestows all the blessings of physical existence, only to ultimately deprive mankind and his world of all these bounties. Jupiter is the sun of illusion, the light which lights the inferior creation, but has nothing in common with that great spiritual light, which is the life of man and the light of the world. According to the Gnostics, the Demiurgus and his angels represented the false light, which lured souls to their destruction by causing them to believe in the permanence of matter, and that life within the veil of tears was the true existence. According to philosophy, only those who rise above the light of the inferior universe to that great and glorious spiritual luminescence belonging to the superphysical spheres can hope to discover everlasting life. The physical universe is therefore the body of Jupiter, Jehovah, Osiris, or Shiva. The sun is the pulsating heart of each of these deities. The sunspots are caused, as H.P. Blavatsky notes, by the expansion and contraction of the solar heart at intervals of 11 years. In the Greek and Roman mythologies, Zeus, or Jupiter, is the chief of the twelve gods of Olympus. Olympus was a mythical mountain rising in the midst of the world. It is the dot, or sun itself. For it is written that the tabernacle of the gods is in the skies. From the face of this sun shines a golden corona, whose numberless fiery points are the countless gods who transmit the life of their sovereign lord, and who are his ministers to the farthest corners of his empire. In the Hebrew philosophy, the rays of the sun are the hairs of the head and beard of the great face. Each hair is the radius of a mystical circle, with the sun as the center and outer darkness as the circumference. It is curious that, in Egypt, the name of the second person of the triad, the Manifester, should be Re or Ra, and his title, the Lord of the Light. Ra bears witness, however, to this invisible and eternal Father, for the light of the sun is not the true sun, but bears witness to the invisible source of the effulgence. Thus, as the beams of the physical sun become the light of the physical body of existence, so the rays of the intellectual sun are the light of the mind, and all power, all vitality, and all increase come as the result of attunement to the fiery streamers of those divine beings to whom has been given the appellation of the gods. A few words at this time concerning the symbolism of Neptune. While Neptune is popularly associated with the sea, Occultly, he signifies the albuminous part of the great egg of Jupiter. In certain schools of Orphic mysticism, the inferior universe, like the supreme all-enclosing sphere, is symbolized by an egg. A lesser egg has Jupiter for a yoke, Neptune for the albumen. 
and Pluto for their shell. It is therefore evident that Neptune is not associated with the physical element of water, but rather with the electrical fluids permeating the entire solar system. He is also associated with the astral world, a sphere of fluidic essences and part of the mirror of Maya, the illusion. As the connective between Jupiter and Pluto, Neptune represents a certain phase of material intellect, which, like the element of water, is very changeable and inconstant. Like water, Neptune is recognized as a vitalizer and life-giver, and in the ancient mysteries was associated with the germinal agents. The fish, or spermatozoan, previous to its period of germination, was under his dominion. Descending from the sphere of cosmology to the life of the individual, it is important that certain analogies be made between Jupiter as the lord of the world and the microcosmic Jupiter, who is the lord of each individual life. That which in our own nature we call I is, according to mysticism, not the real I or self, but the Jupiterian or inferior I, the demiurgic self. It may even be said to be the false self, which, by accepting as real, we elevate to a position greater than it is capable of occupying. A very good name for Jupiter is the human spirit as differentiated from the divine spirit which belongs to the supermaterial spheres. In man, Jupiter has his abiding place in the human heart, while Neptune dwells in the brain, and Pluto is the generative system. Thus is established the formative triad in the physical nature of man. As the physical universe is the lower and least permanent part of existence, so the physical body is the lower and the least permanent part of man. Above the lord of the body, with his aeons or angels, is the divine mind and all-pervading consciousness. The body of man is mortal, though his divine parts partake, to a certain degree, of immortality. Over the mortal nature of man rules an incarnating ego, which organizes matter into bodies, and by this organization foredooms them to be redistributed to the primordial elements. As Jupiter had his palace on the summit of Mount Olympus, so from his glorious cardiac throne on the top of the diaphragm muscle, he rules the body as lord of the human world. Jupiter in us is the thing we have accepted as our true self. But meditation upon the subject matter of this lecture will disclose all true relationship between the human self and the universal all, of which it is a fragmentary yet all potential part. Recognizing Jupiter to be the lord of the world, or the incarnating ego which invests itself in universal matter, it then becomes evident that the two higher spheres of trinities of divine powers constitute the hermetic anthropos, or non-incarnating overman. This majestic and superior part consisting of the threefold darkness of absolute cause and the threefold light, or celestial splendor, hovers over the third triad, consisting of the threefold world form, or triune cosmic activity. The highest expression of matter is mind, which occupies the middle distance between activity on the one hand and inertia on the other. The mind of man is hypothetically considered to consist of two parts. The lower mind, which is linked to the demiurgic sphere of Jupiter, and the higher mind, which ascends toward and is akin to the substance of the divine power of Kronos. These two phases of mind are the moral and immortal minds of Eastern philosophy. Mortal mind is hopelessly involved in the illusion of sense and substance. 
But immortal or divine mind transcending these unrealities is one with truth and light. Here we have a definite key to several misunderstood concepts as now promulgated through the doctrines of Christian science. Since intelligence is the highest manifestation of matter, it is logically the lowest manifestation of consciousness or spirit, and Jupiter, or the personal I, is enshrined in the substances of mortal mind, where he controls his world through what man is pleased to term intellect. The Jupiterian intellect, however, is that which sees outward or toward the illusions of manifested existence, whereas the higher or spiritual mind, which is latent in most individuals, is that superior faculty which is capable of thinking inward or toward the profundities of self. In other words, is capable of facing toward and gazing upon the substance of reality. Thus, the mind may be likened to the two-faced Roman god Janus. With one face this god gazes outward upon the world, and with the other inward toward the sanctuary in which it is enshrined. The two-faced mind is an excellent subject for meditation. The objective or moral mind continually emphasizes to the individual the paramount importance of physical phenomena. The subjective or immortal mind, if given opportunity for expression, combats this material instinct by intensifying the regard for that which transcends the limitations of the physical perceptions. Subservient to Jupiter, who, bearing his thunderbolt and accompanied by his royal eagle, is indeed the king of this world, or Neptune and Pluto. The god Neptune, of course, is not to be regarded as either the planet or as an influence derived from the planet, but as the lord of the middle sphere of the inferior world. In man, the middle sphere between mind and matter is occupied by emotion or feeling. The instability of the human emotion is well symbolized by the element of water, which is continually in motion, the peaceful surface of which can be transformed into a destroying fury by forces moving above its broad expanse. The emotional nature of man is closely associated with the astral light or magical sphere of the ancient and medieval magicians. In this plane, illusion is particularly powerful. As one writer has wisely observed, it is a land of beauty, a garden of flowers, but a serpent is entwined about the stem of each. Among the Oriental mystics, this sphere of the astral light is considered particularly dangerous, for those who are aspiring to an understanding of spiritual mysteries are often enmeshed in this garden of Kundri and believing that they have found the truth are carried to their destruction by the flow of this astral fluid. Riding in his chariot drawn by seahorses and surrounded by nereids, riding upon sporting dolphins, Neptune carries in his hand the trident, a symbol common to both the lord of the illusion and the red-robed tempter. Neptune is the lord of dreams, and all mortal creatures are dreamers. All that mankind has accomplished in the countless ages of its struggle upward toward the light is the result of dreaming. Yet if dreams are not backed up by action and controlled by reason, they become a snare and a delusion, and the dreamer drifts onward into oblivion and a mystic ecstasy. You will remember that according to Greek mythology, there was a river called Styx, which divided the sphere of the living from that of the dead. This river is the mysterious Sea of Neptune, which all men must cross if they would rise from material ignorance into philosophic illumination. 
This Neptunian sea may be likened to the ethers which permeate and bind together the material elements of nature. The sphere of Neptune is a world of ever-moving fantasy without beginning and without end, a mystical maze through which souls wander for uncounted ages if once caught in the substances of this shadowy dreamland. The lowest division of the Jupiterian sphere is under the dominion of Pluto, the regent of death. Pluto is the personification of the mass physical attitude of all things toward objective life. Pluto may be termed the principle of the mortal code, in accordance with which nature lives and moves and has her being. Pluto may also be likened to an intangible atmosphere permeated with definite terrestrial instincts. Unconsciously inhaling this atmosphere, man is enthused by it and accepts it as the basis of living. The individual who is controlled by the plutonic miasma contracts a peculiar mental and spiritual malaria which destroys all transcendental instinct and spiritual initiative, leaving him a psychical invalid already two-thirds a victim of the plutonic plague. As Plato so admirably says, the body is the sepulchre of the soul, and whereas Neptune is symbolic of the astral or elemental soul, which is a mysterious emanation from elementary nature. Pluto is the god of the underworld, the deity ruling the spheres of the mysterious circle of being and therefore represents the lowest degree of Jupiterian light, which is physical matter. Hades, or the land of the dead, is simply an environment resulting from crystallization. Everything that exists in a crystallized state furnishes the environment of Hades for whatever life is evolving through it. Thus, the lower universe is ruled over by three apparently heartless gods, birth, growth, and decay. From their palaces in space, these deities hurl the instruments of their wrath upon hapless humanity and elementary nature. But he who is fortunate enough to escape the thunderbolts of Jove will yet fall beneath the trident of Neptune, or be torn to pieces by the dogs of Father, Dis, Pluto. The ancient Greeks occasionally employed a centaur to represent man, thus indicating that out of the body of the beast, which feels upon its back the lash of outrageous destiny, rises a nobler creature possessed of God-given reason, who through sheer force of innate divinity shall become master of those who seek to bind him to a mediocre end. While on the subject of the dot, the line, and the circle, there is one very simple application of the principle which we insert in order to emphasize the analogies existing through the entire structure of human thought. Take a simple problem in grammar. The noun, which is the subject of the sentence, is analogous to the dot. The verb, which is the action of the subject, is analogous to the line. And the object, which is the thing acted upon, is analogous to the circle. These analogies may be also traced through music and color and through the progression of chemical elements. Always the trinity of the dot, the line, and the circle has some correspondent, for it is the basis upon which the entire structure of existence and function, both universal and individual, has been raised. Consider this fundamental symbolism, philosophize upon it, dream about it, for an understanding of these symbols is the beginning of wisdom. There is no problem, whether involved with the simple mechanism of an earthworm or the inconceivable complex mechanism of a universe, that has not been constructed upon the triangular foundation of the dot, the line, and the circle. 
These are the proper symbols of the creative, preservative, and disintegrative agencies which manifest the incomprehensible absolute before temporary creation. The three worlds we have outlined are the supreme, the superior, and the inferior worlds of the Orphic theology, as revealed by Pythagoras and Plato. The supreme world is the sphere of the one indivisible and ever-enduring Father. The superior world is the sphere of the gods, the progeny of the Father, and the inferior world is the sphere of mortal creatures who are the progeny of the gods. Therefore, says Pythagoras, men live in the inferior world, God in the supreme world, and the men who are gods and the gods who are men in the intermediate plane. You will recall that it was said of Pythagoras by his disciples that there were of two-footed creatures three kinds, gods, men, and Pythagoras. It should be inferred that the dot represents the gods, the circle men, and the line connecting them Pythagoras, or the personification of that superhuman wisdom, which binds cause and effect inextricably together, and which is the hope of salvation for the lesser. The deity dwelling in the supreme world, and which the Platonists termed the One, was, according to the Scandinavians, All-Father, the sure foundation of being. In India, it was Brahma, and in Egypt, Ammon. The line always represented the savior gods, they being the eldest sons or firstborn of intangible deity. The line bears witness of the dot as the light bears witness of the life. All this gives a clue to the statement in the New Testament. Whoso hath seen the Son, hath seen the Father, for the Son is in the Father, and the Father in the Son. In other words, whoso hath seen the line, hath seen the dot, for the dot is in the line, and the line is in the dot. In the ancient Jewish rites, the line was Michael, the archangel of the sun, in Scandinavia, Balder, the beautiful. It is to the lower world of men that the light, the dot pouring into the line, personified as the universal savior, descends to redeem consciousness from the darkness of a living grave, the circumference of the circle. The mystery God who lifted souls to salvation through his own nature thus represents the line, the divine symbol of the way of achievement. For it is written that none shall come unto the Father saved by the Son, and none of those creatures dwelling in the circumference can reach the center, or dot, save by ascending the hypothetical line of the radius. The line is the bridge connecting cause with effect. In Immanuel Kant's philosophy, we find the dot designated the noumena, and the circumference the phenomena. The former, the reality, the later, the unreality. The line, the human mind, must ever be the agency that bridges the void between them. In the Platonic philosophy, there are three manners of being. One, gods, or those must proximate to the absolute, who dwell within the nature of the dot. Two, men, or those who are most distant from the absolute, who dwell in the circumference of the circle. Three, the heroes and the demigods, who are suspended between divinity and humanity, and who dwell in the sphere of the line. So, according to philosophy, the line is a ladder up which man ascends to light from his infernal state, and down which he descends in his involution. The fall of man is the descent down the ladder from the dot to the circumference. The resurrection or redemption of man is his return from the circumference to the dot. 
Of such importance are these primary symbols that we have felt it absolutely necessary to devote the introductory lectures of this series to the subject of the dot, the line, and the circle. It should ever be borne in mind that the veneration for symbols is not idolatry, for symbols are formulated to clarify truths which in their abstract form are incomprehensible. Idolatry consists in the inability of the mind to differentiate between the symbol and the abstract principle for which it stands. If this definition be accepted, it can be proved that there are very few truly idolatrous peoples. Philosophically, the literalist is always an idolater. He who worships the letter of the law bows down to wood and stone. But he who comprehends the spirit of the law is a true worshipper before the measureless altar of eternal nature, upon which continually burns the spirit fire of the world. Chapter 2 God, the Divine Foundation From the preceding lecture, it is evident that any description or definition of unknowable ultimates is possible only in the terms of negation. In other words, every definition so-called must be eliminative, and that which remains when all else is taken away must necessarily be the only thing incapable of removal. When considering the nature of primordial substance, the average school of philosophy postulates an active first cause. Otherwise, it is wholly at a loss to explain how creation can be the product of a passive power. Activity is accordingly postulated as a fundamental attribute of being. To me, however, it is inconceivable that the first cause, or more correctly the causeless cause, should be either positive or negative. Rather, it seems more fitting to posit a permanent condition which is neither positive in an active sense nor negative in a passive sense, but which is power in absolute suspension. For lack of a better defining term, we might conceive of eternal being as an enduring neitherness, partaking of neither the presence nor the absence of any tangible force or condition. The condition of the absolute can only be suggested by a suspended neitherness of both activity and inertia. To attempt an analysis of the fabric of even the groundwork of space far exceeds the capacity of any human intellect. Never in the history of philosophy has there been evolved a mind capable of grasping all the multitudinous elements of being. The world is filled with people who foolishly try to teach or seek to be taught the length, breadth, and thickness of ultimates, when but a moment's true thinking would demonstrate the fallacy and futility of such effort. Since the groundwork of space, the ultimate abstraction, transcends every faculty and every dimension, it can never be comprehended by a reasoning organism that must necessarily arrive at its conclusions on the basis of faculty and dimension. For the human mind to understand that which is greater than itself is as impossible as for a mere man to swallow the ocean. The effort of the human mind to circumscribe the entirety of manifestation is comparable to a mollusk trying to enclose the sea within its shell. Realizing, therefore, how apropos is the ancient statement that to define deity is to defile it, we are forced to accept the inevitable conclusion of the ages, namely that the ultimates of beginning and end are likewise unknowable. These conclusions are in harmony with the deductions of both Socrates and Buddha. 
The gods may be conceived of in either the singular or the plural sense. In the singular, if we consider the deities as fractional parts of one creative agent. In the plural, if we look upon the various parts as separate vehicles of cosmic intelligence. Thus, in many ancient doctrines, we have evidence of a fundamental monotheism manifesting through a complex polytheism. For example, the Elohim, or secondary gods of the ancient Jews, who, as the creative demiurgy, moved upon the face of the deep and together constitute a single cosmic deity. In the same way, the elaborate pantheon of the Hindus is a mosaic of gods who, in combination from the nature of the supreme and all-powerful Brahma, the gods may be considered as symbolic of the individual states of consciousness continually unfolding within the nature of absolute being. The concept of a single personal deity who was prudent enough to fashion himself without eyelids lest he fall asleep from that exhaustion, which must necessarily result from an eternal vigil, is hardly adequate to meet the evident needs of existence. Up to the present time, the advocates of monotheism have advanced no concept of deity adequate to control creation, without the assistance of a privy council or celestial parliament. A few moments of serious consideration will reveal that a fundamental monotheism manifesting through an elaborate polytheism is by far the most noble concept of cosmic government, and is the basis of all the successful governments maintained by man upon earth. The modern world is inclined to look askance at the elaborate pantheons of the Greeks, Egyptians, and Hindus, and rather prides itself that it has outgrown such theological crudities. Even now, however, there is a definite reversion to the pantheistic cults of antiquity, and when properly understood, the Orphic theogony will enjoy a glorious renaissance. The subject of philosophic polytheism deserves further attention. Polytheism must not be considered synonymous with the blind adoration of an infinitude of imaginary superhuman beings, but rather as the recognition of a concatenated progression of evolving creatures, each influencing and to a certain degree controlling those inferior to itself, and in turn controlled by those superior to itself. The gods should not be considered as personally directing the destiny of individuals. Rather, they are vast centers of radiant force, consciously or unconsciously influencing anything that exists or subsists upon their sphere of manifestation. For example, a city does not willfully mold the character of its inhabitants. Nevertheless, it is an active factor in determining the character of each individual unit of its population. This simile, while possibly not apparent at first thought, is particularly apt, for as cells exist in the human body, so man is but a cell in a larger organism which he pleases to term a god. The cells of the human body may feel a similar veneration for man, who in the light of cell intelligence must be a boundless and infinitely powerful deity. Polytheism, therefore, may be best defined as a veneration for causal agencies. Obedience to the will of the gods was regarded as the basis of human happiness and simply meant that only those who lived in harmony with natural law could hope for a tranquil existence. To the ancients, it seemed essential that intelligence should manifest from an intelligent creator. In other words, the manifesting thought proved the existence of the unmanifested thinker. Intelligence exists in every department of creation 
The entire universe is controlled by definite laws that evidence the omniscience of the eternal thinker. From the fountainhead of immeasurable mind, the cogitations of deity stream forth to make fertile with thought the whole area of being. Broken up by creations as upon a prism, the mind-light of deity becomes manifest as an infinite order of separate and specialized intelligences. Thus, upon the surface of the sea of universal mind appear numberless foci, each controlling a definite phase of cosmic activity. The gods are such foci. So are men, but to a more limited degree. The sum of all these individual minds is the one universal mind, so that in that last analysis, gods, men, and worlds are each fragments of the whole. The philosophers of all ages have realized that the achievement of perfect wisdom lies in the elevation of the power of comprehension to that state where it is able to grasp the relation of the parts of existence to the sum of existence which the Buddhists designate the self. All great systems of religious philosophy agree that anterior to the gods is the one and undivided, who is the very foundation of manifested existence, or the first limitation of absolute being, and who may properly be designated the father of gods and men. We shall now turn our attention to a consideration of the powers and attributes of this first of all mortals, the chief of those who die, the firstborn of Absolute Self. In 72 languages, men call this first power God, the first and most perfect of creations, the eldest of the old, and the most ancient of the most ancient. God is best defined as the first manifestation of infinite existence, the limitation of limitlessness. In his adoration of deity, man is prone to consider God as synonymous with all in that God is synonymous with all that man can hope to comprehend. But behind comprehension is that which is incomprehensible, the thrice-black darkness which exists unhonored and unsung through the unmeasured duration of eternity, and upon whose placid surface time comes and goes, and beginning and ends are but incidental. To return to the symbolism of the preceding lecture, God is the dot, the first island floating in and upon the permanent depths of unlimited existence. God is therefore capable of definition in the terms of the dervish, by whom as chief of beings he is denominated the axis of the world, or that immovable center about which all revolves. Before it is possible to approach deity through philosophy, it is necessary to nullify the traditional practice prevalent throughout Christendom of referring to deity as a masculine potency and describing to him most human vices, which, however, becomes virtues by reason of his unquestioned position as despotic arbiter of right and wrong. The modern religious thinker is no longer inclined to venerate a deity who is simply a highly glorified King George III. In that now vanishing picturesque period of absolute monarchies when fretful and senile princes arrayed in ridiculous periwigs ruled by divine right, God was invested with all the propensities of the blood royal, and the celestial hierarchies were metamorphosed into landed gentry. In spite of the repeated emphasis upon our age of enlightenment, the majority of people still continue the age-honored practice of molding God into a likeness of themselves. The reason for this probably lies in the fact that man, possessing a spark of divinity within himself, feels his kinship with God and believes himself privileged to rush in where angels fear to tread, 
and give definition to the undefinable. God being, as Ingersoll so well expressed it, the noblest work of man, we find in the attributes of the God people worship a definite key to their own ethical and philosophic status. It is noticeable that people with puerile intelligences and petty concerns conceive God to be localized as a neighborhood sprite who spends most of his time eavesdropping, and who can afford to ignore universal concerns while he heaps maledictions upon some poor benighted wretch who did not keep his eyes closed during grace. On the other hand, those who have learned to know something of the greater verities of life worship a growing God. This does not presuppose that God is necessarily increasing, but rather that man's increasing capacity to comprehend ever reveals more of the stupendous nature of divinity. As a person approaches a physical object, the object apparently increases in size. The same is true of the mind as it approaches the subject of its consideration. Hence, to the philosopher, God extends through the infinitude of time, distance, and thought. And to him it is inconceivable that even for a second deity should descend into a state less dignified than the all-inclusiveness of its intrinsic nature. Among many ancient peoples, God was considered as being androgynous and referred to as the Great Father-Mother. When the Creator was represented by an image, various subtle devices were employed to indicate its hermaphroditic nature. The Aswara of the Hindus is depicted with one side of his body male and the other female. In Greek and Roman statuary, frequent examples are found of a masculine divinity wearing feminine garments and vice versa. Or a heavily bearded god may have his hair arranged in a distinctly feminine coif. Again, the structure of the face of such deities as Bacchus and Dionysus often shows a sensitive, feminine countenance disguised by a beard or some article of masculine adornment. In other cases, the feminine counterpart of the deity is considered as a separate individuality. For this reason, each of the gods was declared to have had his consort or feminine aspect of his own being. Thus Mithras... The Persian light savior is considered to be masculine, but a certain portion of himself divided from the rest becomes Mithra, a feminine and maternal potency. As previously noted, in India each god has his Shakti, or feminine part. Among some peoples, deity has been considered for ages as primarily feminine, as the Brahmins who refer to God as the Great Mother. In Roman Catholicism, there is also a definite tendency to idealize the feminine principle of God to the person of the Virgin Mary, who is elevated to a most exalted position as Queen of Heaven. The custom of depicting God either as male or female is the outgrowth of man's oldest form of worship, phallicism. Masculine and feminine properties are presumed to be positive and negative, respectively. Hence, God, being an active or positive agent, was conceived to be masculine. Nature, being a passive or negative body, was regarded as feminine, in that it received into itself and nurtured to maturity the germinal essences of divine life. The proponents of a masculine God declare that in the beginning was activity, the positive cause of existence. On the other hand, the proponents of the preeminence of the feminine principle declare that activity was first issued from a universal matrix. Consequently, that which comes forth from the matrix is subordinate to its own origin. 
to a certain degree, the Madonna expresses this concept. For the man-child is creation born out of the womb of space, the Holy Mother of Ages. To the philosopher, God as the first manifestation of unmanifested and incomprehensible allness contains both the potencies of the mother and the father in equilibrium. Material existence is the result of the hypothetical division taking place within the nature of this androgynous deity, from whose higher or masculine nature is created the superphysical universe, and from whose inferior or feminine nature is divided the whole world of form. From this point of view, God does not act upon an extraneous body, but action and reaction are simply the interaction of the parts of one universal deity. The English language lacks a proper term with which to designate deity. The word God is comparatively meaningless, as it gives no hint of the gender or dignity of divinity other than merely signifying good. Since either a masculine or a feminine term is appropriate and obviously incomplete, and a neutral term entirely too negative, a word is needed which will express the undivided potencies of both positive and negative in equilibrium. When the terms masculine and feminine were used in philosophic symbolism, the ancients gave a certain supremacy to the masculine principle for two reasons. One, as the male was endowed with greater physical endurance, among primitive peoples, physical strength was considered the most necessary attribute of divinity. Two, as the tribal or state government was a patriarch, it necessarily followed that God as the supreme ruler became dignified as a masculine entity. Those races, however, which elevated woman to a high social status were more prone to endow deity with distinctive feminine characteristics than were those peoples where woman was regarded as little better than a slave. As time went on, man thus became the personification of the positive principle and women of the negative. The viewpoint, however, will not bear close philosophic scrutiny. The so-called inferiority of the female is simply a symbolic figure, having no reference whatever to either the political or ecclesiastical status of woman. It is surprising, however, the extent to which the stigma of this little-understood symbolism has influenced both the racial and individual life of woman. It is still not uncommon to meet people who, while they can give no definite explanation for their feelings, are convinced that the feminine organism lacks some peculiar physical or soul quality, which has been reserved exclusively for masculine expression. The popular misconception, presumably promulgated by the Muslims, that heaven was a place accessible to woman as the result of special intercession on the part of her husband, while not publicly taught in Christendom, is nevertheless painfully evident to those able to analyze accurately the mental and emotional reactions of the average man. Woman's responsibility as the mother of humanity afford ample evidence to the profound thinker that she is far from being a negative creature. The maternal principle was elevated by the Greeks to first place, and the mater derum, mother of the gods, was esteemed worthy of universal veneration. The relative superiority or inferiority of either the positive or negative principles leads one to an inevitable conclusion, namely, that all manifestation being ordered by divine providence 
It is impossible to determine intelligently the ultimate importance of conditions, each of which is essential to all. God as the Father impregnates space with his seed. God as the Mother receives this seed into herself and protects it through the ages necessary for its unfoldment. And God as the child is himself the very seed which, as God the Father, he sowed. Thus is explained the ancient Rosicrucian adage, All is in all, all is all. The commentaries of the Kabbalists upon the early Hebrew scriptures contain lengthy dissertations upon the nature of God as the first being or power to manifest itself upon the surface of Ein Sof, the limitless and boundless sea of eternal potentiality. According to the Kabbalistic version, there appeared upon and in Ein Sof a great, gleaming, jewel-encrusted crown. This John Hayden calls the wise man's crown set with suns, moons, and stars, and ornamented with archangels. Ten sparkling sapphires sent streamers of celestial splendor from their faceted surfaces, and the great crown, Kether, which was the foundation of the world, rested upon the intangible but immovable foundation of the absolute divinity. From the crown issued forth the multitudes of divine and elementary beings, who people the forty spheres comprising the Kabbalistic universe. Thus, to a certain degree, the crown is an arc which, resting upon the hypothetical Ararat of limitless being, the Mount of Eternity, caused to issue from itself by twos and by sevens all the pageantry of life, which had been preserved within it through the pralaya, or deluge of cosmic oblivion. Kether, the Ancient of Ancients, the Long Face, the Opened Eye, the Holy One, and the Father Foundation, enthroned in the midst of being, Will's creation, and it is. Kether has neither shape nor form imaginable to us, but in an effort to conceive in part its dignity, we ascribe to it the noblest forms within the vista of our comprehension. The sphere is the most perfect of all bodies, and was therefore chosen by both Pythagoras and Plato as the most perfect symbol of him who shall remain. It is evident, however, that this being does not actually resemble a crown, an opened eye, or, as the Kabbalists affirm, a bald head. These figures of speech in no way limit or change the enduring nature of this first power. Whether we call it father or mother or son, whether we consider it as androgynous or sexless, human or composite, personal or impersonal, it remains forever itself, the first manifestation of unmanifested power. It was in the beginning, for its appearance marks the term of beginning and end, and time has its inception with the establishment of this first divinity. God is as enduring as time, but time and God are both servants of infinity. The meditation of the mystics upon the nature of the first God revealed to them that deity occupies a position somewhat analogous to a focal point. In God, the unknowable potentialities of absolute existence were concentrated and through the nature of deity pass downward and are distributed as active potencies throughout the negative sphere, or field of manifestation. Infinite being thus flows through God into creation, and existence ascends through God to its infinite source. God is therefore the least material and the most spiritual of all created things, of all beings the eldest, of all things the newest. Yet, being differentiated from immortal being, Deity is mortal and subject to ultimate reabsorption into universal space.
in the most abstract sense, God is a hypothetical point established in the midst of absolute self, through which it, absolute self, manifests forth into tangibility and consequent impermanent existence. God is the all made one. The universe is the one made all. Of all the terms with which the deity has been invested, there is none more simple and yet more consistent with the nature of all than that used by Plato, who defines God as the unmoved, self-moving mover. God is unmoved in the sense that it is the sure foundation which will remain as long as time. God is self-moving in that activity is its innate quality. God is the all-mover in that it is the life-giving principle animating all the structures which combine to form the inferior universe. God is the seed in the field of space. From the dark philosophic earth of infinite being, it draws all that it manifests. In the symbolism of the Far East, God comes as a locust bud upon the surface of the great sea, which, after living its appointed span, dies back into the infinite ocean of chaos. God is the firstborn, the infinite monad, so well described by Democritus in his development of the atomic theory. Now comes the legitimate question. If absolute being is unlimited and unconditioned with all its forces in a state of suspension, what causes these periodic centers or deities to come into being, and what law governs their continuance and ultimate dissolution? In other words, if the absolute possesses neither will nor activity in a centralized or manifesting state, how is the genesis of gods and worlds to be explained? Why does not the absolute remain throughout duration in the same unknowing and all-pervading state? It is difficult to conceive of a perfect state giving birth to an imperfect state, and yet, according to philosophy, this is exactly what occurs when universal being supports ephemeral creation upon the surface of itself. Or, as the Hindu mythologist would say, Vara, the boar incarnation of Vishnu, elevates cosmos upon its tusks. The answer to the problem of first cause has confounded several otherwise excellent systems of theology, and the solution advanced by mystical philosophy is one of the most daring postulates of the human mind. Yet for man, with his limited intelligence to ponder too deeply upon such abstract mysteries is highly dangerous, for the solidarity of thought itself is jeopardized. Sir Francis Bacon one of the greatest thinkers of the modern world, realized how fatal to the success of the seeker after truth is the assumption of knowledge. Knowledge, he declared, to be the end, not the beginning of the rational quest after facts. Much of the body of truth, however, is ascertained by the aid of certain fundamental postulations, which must then run the gauntlet of observation and experimentation. Unable to delineate the boundaries or profiles of universal cause, the mind must necessarily reduce cosmic phenomena to terms apprehensible to human reason. To cope with the problems of the abstract, the mind must first discover in the concrete the analogy of the abstract. Having found a simple natural analogy, the philosopher employs the most basic of all the hermetic axioms, namely, that which is below is like unto that which is above. The law of analogy is the most powerful weapon ever placed in the hands of man with which to solve the riddle of the unknown. For by analogy he is able to classify the orders of invisible life, and chart that vast interval between the limitation of human nature 
and the limitlessness of divine nature. With the assistance of the law of analogy, let us then approach the problem of first cause. Sleep is a state somewhat resembling death. In fact, St. Paul definitely relates them to each other. Death, moreover, is analogous to the state of the absolute in that it is the cessation of that activity which destroys the tranquility of infinite duration. Again, no sense of time, place, or condition is apparent during sleep. A few seconds of a distorted dream may represent a lifetime in which persons and places come and go with kaleidoscopic speed. Speed also partakes of the nature of the absolute in that the objective world disappears. The sleeper rests in an unknowing state, and an almost nirvanic trance-like condition controls the functioning parts. During sleep there is neither will nor rational activity in the objective world, oblivious to the entire panorama of existence. The objective soul lies in a state which is neither light nor darkness, and which defies intelligent definition. Sleep, however, does not override the claims of habit. If a person is accustomed to awake at a certain hour, when that hour arrives, consciousness seemingly rises out of unconsciousness with no apparent motivation other than the subtle, innate urge of habit. The individual wakes and, grasping with drowsy fingers the sense perceptions, assumes the labors of the day. The mind was never told to rouse the sleeper, nor did he have any realization that some intangible agent would at a certain time dissipate the state of dreaming forced the life back into wakeful activity. The sleeper suddenly opens his eyes and discovers it to be the usual rising hour. Habit is seemingly stronger than the state of sleep, for it is something that awakens the sleeper even when he cannot wake himself. Therefore, says the ancient doctrine, the comings and goings of creation upon the surface of infinite expanse are the impulses of the law of periodicity. Thus, periodicity may be defined as the habit of infinite space. Habit causes the unknown elements and agencies comprising the absolute periodically to spawn forth worlds and to draw them back again into itself periodically. Habit causes the sleeping universe to awaken after the seven nights of rest. And after its seven days of labor habit, and necessity again caused the tired creation to sink back into the arms of space. Though not a thinking substance, space contains the potentiality of thought. Thought is simply one of the numerous limited expressions of space and does not come into manifestation until the creative processes have limited the all to the condition known as intelligence. That is the reason why the law of periodicity, or the spontaneous awakening of life, is necessary, in that space possesses no tangible urge or force other than habit which is itself a purely hypothetical term. It is the supreme and eternal habit of absolute being to create and also to take creation back again into itself. Thus, the outpouring and the inflowing may be likened to the ebb and flow of an eternal sea. Creation sinking into space is no better able to conceive of the absolute than is man to conceive of the substance of sleep. Nor do the seven sleepers upon awakening from their ages of slumber have any more concept of the condition from which they have emerged than has man when he rises from his slumbers. It is a daring thought to define cosmic law as the habit of space. 
But the urges which immutably direct all things to their predestined end are thus explained. Periodically upon the face of not-being, which is all-being, there appears centers of life, the chakras or seeds of future worlds. The swastika is their proper symbol, for it is the whirling across that represents the centralizing motion of the eternal all. This first all-inclusive bubble, a magnificent iridescent sphere floating gracefully through eternity, is called God. And within its transparent shell, creation lives and moves and has its being. Its purpose finally fulfilled, the bubble bursts and disappears. Its parts are reabsorbed into the surrounding apparent nothingness. All that man is or can ever hope to be depends upon his concept of God. No individual is greater than the God he worships, nor is he capable of worshipping a concept of God greater than himself. Thus is established a vicious circle. The noble concept of Baron von Leibniz, that the universe is made up of monads or metaphysical germs, all contained within one great monad, may be contrasted with the theological concept of the last century, which conceived the deity to be a married man who took strange delight. As Voltaire has noted, in watching his creation eat the body of his beloved son at the sacrament. Man's concept of God must pass through three definite states symbolized by the dot, the line, and the circle, which received so much consideration in the preceding lecture. The lowest concept of God is as a personality, a physical entity, whose symbol is the circumference of the circle. Superior to this concept is that of God as an individuality, a mental entity, whose symbol is the line. The third and highest definable concept is that of God as a spiritual entity, a permeating and diffusing life-giving principle, whose symbol is the dot. But above all these concepts, and superior to God even as a spiritual entity, is that concept of absolute space, formless and definitionless, whose only symbol is the blank sheet of paper. In every philosophic system, God is either the beginning or the end of the chain of thought. We may invest our concept of deity with certain qualities and conditions and, accepting that as a starting point, seek to grasp the necessary process involved in the creation of the phenomenal sphere. We may posit as our working formula certain divine manifestation in the material universe and by induction seek to understand the nature of a deity capable of producing such phenomena out of its own nature. Thus, in our investigation, we either begin with the dot and travel toward the circumference, or we begin with the circumference and travel toward the dot. On the one hand, we posit a deity and then, imagining ourselves to be that deity, construct a universe. On the other hand, we posit a minute atom and, through an infinite series of combinations and unfoldments, trace manifesting life back to its spiritual source. Antiquity posited divinity and then constructed the universe. The 20th century first posits the universe and then looks for God. As God, however, it is not obvious to the crass materialist. He is often entirely eliminated in the findings of that particular type of scientist. You will remember that upon reading Laplace's great work upon astronomy, Napoleon made the remark, But you make no mention of God. To which the great scientist haughtily replied, Sire, I have no need for that hypothesis. 
Generally speaking, the elimination of God by the scientist is only a passing symptom. It occurs at that stage where the scientist, like the precocious child, upon reaching the summit of Fool's Mountain, decides that he himself is sufficient to postulate a cause for the universe and is qualified to manipulate it according to his own whims. Upon essaying the role of the general manager of Cosmos, man invariably discovers that the task is far too arduous and so eventually returns to God, his universe. Modern thought, which is basically skeptical, declares God to exist only when discovered. And yet, however, none has discovered deity. The only discovery thus far made is the absolute necessity of a first cause, and this paramount need for such a supreme activity is conclusive proof of the existence of such a force or being. To summarize, the modern world bases its entire philosophy of life upon the reality of the visible, whereas the ancient world conceived the invisible to be the real. Thus, we have two diametrically opposed viewpoints. In the final analysis, it is evident that the viewpoint of antiquity is correct. In the first place, the visible is actually such a small part of existing nature, it is inconceivable that it should be accorded to a position of first importance. All bodies float in a vast sea of space, forming but a fractional part of the contents of this great sphere of being. The invisible life must be superior to its vehicle of manifestation. Therefore, the great reality, life, cannot actually be considered a part of the phenomenal universe. It is a strange but fundamental truth that the least permanent thing in the universe is a rock, and the most permanent is so-called empty space for the time will come when the rock will cease to be, but space will never pass away. Form can be destroyed and is ever-changing, but space, by its very nature, is indestructible and forever the same. We now come to the nature of emptiness. Emptiness merely implies the absence of form, but the formless active agent, being all-permeating, fills all existence. You may pour the water out of a glass and then declare the glass to be empty because apparently it contains nothing. Any scientist, however, will assure you that the empty glass contains a sufficient number of atoms to blow the earth out of its orbit, if their combined energy could be properly directionalized. Emptiness, therefore, is paradoxically an incomprehensible fullness. Philosophically considered, the absence of form means impossibility of destruction. That which has no form cannot have the form taken away. Emptiness, so-called, is consequently more permanent than fullness. In its conventional sense, fullness means that the container is filled to capacity with physical elements. The true fullness, however, is that area which is completely filled with spiritual and eternal agencies. Of such, a nature is space which, far from being empty, may be likened to a spiritual solid whereas the physical world may be best described as a spiritual vacuum. According to the Platonists, all the creations manifesting outward from the nature of God are arranged in the order of their proximity to first cause. Those nearer the source of life partake more of the celestial effulgence than those more distant. In other words, the light radiating from a flame more closely resembles the flame at the source than at the extremity of its rays. The order of the gods is therefore determined by their proximity to the central creative fire of the universe, which is termed the altar of Vesta or the tower of the all-wise father. 
The gods are not to be considered as independent entities or forces, but rather as monads with numerous subordinate powers and intelligences dependent upon them. Each deity is in turn a dependency of a superior being, until at last all unite in a common dependency upon the benevolence of first cause. Thus each individual deity may be symbolized by the dot, the line, and the circle. As a dot, each god is the central monad of a host of inferior dependencies. As a line, each god is a streaming radiance, nourishing its subordinate parts. And as a circle or circumference, each god is a fractional part of a still greater monadic entity. The majesty of these divinities is therefore established by the law of relativity. Each god is the father of a multitudinous progeny, which exists within its own nature and which must unquestioningly obey its dictates. Each deity is in turn part of the progeny of a still higher and more exalted power to which it renders homage. Thus, each deity is both a creator and a creation in one. As man ascends the latter uniting effect with cause, he approaches ever closer to conscious realization of source. He therefore passes through the angelic choirs described by Dante in his Paradiso. These choirs and concatenated circles about the flaming throne of the Eternal Father represent the orders of divine emanations. Thus, the central flame is ever surrounded by many ringed nimbus of subordinate lights supporting all creation. Let us approach the problem of macrocosmic interdependency through a consideration of certain microcosmic realities. The human body may be considered either as a single unit or as a host of minute living organisms combining in accordance with certain definite laws. Each individual cell is a living and immortal creature, and it also has been definitely established that various organs of the human body possess at least a selective intelligence. Yet all these separate living parts are suspended, as it were, from the single monad of the human heart. The heart is to the body what the sun is to the solar system and first cause to existence. If one of the cells within the body dies, the body still lives. But if the chief governing monad ceases to function, then all the cells or dependent parts partake of the general dissolution. As the life of the body is centralized in the heart, even though a general life is diffused throughout the body, so while life may be discovered in every creature existing in the manifested sphere. All these subordinate lives are swept to a common destruction if the great monad upon which they depend be removed. The lesser lives have their origin in the greater and must always remain its dependence. Deity, as the first monad of the world, is the foundation of the universe, the sacred island, sometimes analogous to Shambhala, the city of the gods. Upon this monad is erected all creation. With its dissolution, the far-reaching and diversified phenomena collapse like a house of cards. Therefore, God may be defined as that upon which a lesser part depends. Our God is the monad, from whose nature we as lesser monads hang by hypothetical threads. Hence, there are many gods, for all beings, both great and small, hang as dependencies upon the nature of superior forms of life. Next, we must consider the philosophic principle of priority. Of a number of things related to each other, that which is fundamental is primary or first, and the rest are dependencies. For example, a ship may carry a large and diversified cargo. 
If any part of the cargo be thrown overboard, the safety of the ship is not necessarily endangered. If, however, the ship should sink, all its cargo goes down too. Thus the cargo depends upon the ship for its preservation, but the ship does not depend upon the cargo. The priority of either a science or a living organism is established by the degree of its fundamental importance to all other sciences and organisms. The destruction of priority automatically annihilates all its dependencies. If you destroy that which is first, that which is secondary also ceases. If you destroy that which is secondary, you in no way injure that which is first. You simply limit some phase of its manifestation. Pythagoras used the science of mathematics to illustrate the principle of priority. Remove mathematics and you destroy every form of human knowledge which is in any way dependent upon numbers or the theory of mathematics. For example, consider the relationship between mathematics and music. The science of harmonics is wholly dependent upon mathematics. If you remove the knowledge of music from the world, you destroy a certain phase of mathematics. But the body of numbers is left uninjured. On the other hand, if you remove mathematics from the world, the entire theory of harmonics perishes. Of the two, mathematics is primary and music secondary. Another simple illustration. The tree has one trunk and many branches. The branches are dependent upon the trunk. For if one of the branches be removed, the life of the tree is not seriously impaired, and the other branches remain unaffected. Destroy the trunk, however, and all the branches die together. In the search for knowledge, the highest wisdom is first to learn those things which have priority. To learn mathematics, for example, is to possess already a certain knowledge of all the sciences, because it is the first among the sciences. For this reason, the Greeks and Egyptians demanded all the disciples seeking initiation into the mysteries and understanding of mathematics. The identity of first things can be determined by applying the principle of priority. Things are considered of greater or lesser importance according to what they depend upon and what is dependent upon them. Man is master over those forms of life dependent upon him, but a slave to that infinity of forces which he depends upon for every expression and manifestation. The gods are merely symbolic representations of states of relative dependency. The gods are greater than man because they represent the members of existence upon which man depends. Such a chain of dependency is well represented by the institution of feudalism. The country was divided among a group of nobles whose relative importance depended upon the extent of their individual domains. A certain number of baronies constituted an earldom, and a group of earldoms in turn formed a dukedom. Above the dukedom was the principality, and over all the king, who on a smaller scale was the god of his nation. Greatness depends upon constructive and destructive power, destructive in the sense of changing rather than annihilating. A further thought concerning the term dependency. Our hands and feet are dependent upon us for their animating principle. We are dependent upon them for the expression of certain innate desires and attitudes. Our hands and feet protect us, but they are obviously less than that which they protect. They may be likened to vassals or stewards. In the days of knighthood, when knights went into battle, they were attended by esquires or stewards who rode behind their masters to free them from their heavy armor in the event that they were unhorsed or to arrange for a ransom with their conqueror. 
an ancient philosophy that gods represent the hands and feet and vital members of the cosmic body. Like the cherubim of the Jews, they run back and forth in the whirlwinds, executing the orders of the Most High, even as our busy fingers carry out the dictates of our brain. The one supreme power manifesting throughout the cosmic organism should be considered as manifesting throughout all created things, each of which is a faculty or member of minor or major importance. An interesting story came to our attention of an East Indian pundit who was trying to explain to a rather bigoted Christian missionary the reason for the great number of heads appearing upon the shoulders of certain Hindu divinities. My dear sir, exclaimed the missionary, yonder many-headed image is a ghastly character of a god, and how can any people who have risen above an aboriginal state worship such a grotesque and unnatural concept of God? The pundit smilingly replied, You do not understand our method of symbolizing divine agencies. In your own scriptures it is plainly implied that God is all there is, and that in him we live and move and have our being. God is the heavens and the earth and all the creatures that inhabit them. You have a head. I have a head. All human beings have heads. Has God, therefore, not as many heads as there are heads, as many hands as there are hands, and as many feet as there are feet? Are not all minds his mind, all thoughts his thoughts, and all works accomplished for him done by him through his manifested parts? Therefore, my dear sir, our failure is not for lack of comprehension, but because no artist alive is able to carve enough heads to adequately represent the nature of the Creator. Philosophy is not solely an intellectual reasoning process whereby certain definite conclusions are reached concerning macrocosmic and microcosmic realities. Philosophy utterly fails in its mission unless that mystical elixir, understanding, tinctures the whole. Understanding is the rarest of all faculties. It is a subtle power which adds to the intellectual concept, a definite stimulating realization or intuitive grasp of the fundamental elements involved in any problem and their relationship to each other. Understanding is the ultimate stage of knowledge. It is the perfect realization of the purpose and meaning of things. For 2,000 years, the men of the church have been studying Christianity. Orators have shouted its precepts from the housetops. The crusaders carried the message with the sword, the monk with the crucifix, and the holy inquisition with the firebrand. For nearly 2,000 years, men and women of devout spirit have prayed and fasted and meditated. They have even died as martyrs that the spirit of their faith might go on. This host of propagandists of Christianity, most had either an intellectual or an emotional concept of the Master Jesus and his mission. Only here and there was one who understood, and too often his fate was to fall before the mob of enthusiastic but misunderstanding zealots. Today there are innumerable truths which remain unrevealed to the seeker after knowledge, because he does not possess the philosophic open sesame. To the understanding mind all doors open. To those without understanding, life must ever remain a tormenting enigma. At the beginning of this chapter is a diagram showing the god Brahma as the creator of the universe, from his three heads representative of the triune nature of first cause, extend three streamers of force outward to form the foundations of the three worlds. 
In modern Hindu mysticism, Brahma is generally represented with four heads and occasionally with five, one of which is supposed to have been cut out by Shiva. The four-headed Brahma is a demiurgic god, being the foundation of the four elements. The three-headed Brahma here referred to signifies the abstract creative logos, or the dot, manifesting as primitive potencies, the threefold darkness of the absolute, from whose incomprehensibility Brahma is but one degree removed. The three mouths of Brahma breathe forth the sacred whirlwinds of cosmic breath, which become incarnate in the universe as the creative trimurti of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, and which correspond to the first trinity of all peoples. From one mouth issues the breath, which is to become spirit, which after passing through numerous modifications manifests as the causal agent throughout the worlds. From the second mouth streams that force which is to be the intermediary state throughout the universe. This state is most tangible as mind, or that mysterious thinking air which, permeating the objective thinking structure, manifests as continuity of reason, perception, and ultimately apperception. The third head breeds forth the maker of worlds and his angels, and from these outpouring essences are fashioned the objective spheres and their diversified genera. In mystical philosophy, the dot, or first emanation, is presumed to have three phases. The key to their meaning is at once apparent if the word phases is substituted for faces. The dot contains three phases of one power, yet in an undifferentiated state. Thus God in mystic Christianity is the dot, while the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are his phases, or the first manifested trimurti. The three phases or faces are sometimes referred to as the three modes of being. From these, primary modes manifests an infinitude of complex organisms. Between this cosmological mystery and the allegory of Noah's Ark, there is a certain analogy. Noah is the dot, his three sons are the faces, and their wives are the shakti, or negative expressions of these faces. As from the positive pole of being, there is manifested this triad of agencies. So from the negative pole of being is manifested the quaternary of demiurgic forces. The two combine to form the sacred septenary, so appropriately symbolized in the Masonic apron with its triangle rising out of the falling into, according to the degree, the square. The descent of the three into the four properly symbolizes the ensoulment of the world by its spiritual cause. The ascent of the three out of the four, the resurrection of life from its sepulchre of form. The process by which the entire objective universe is caused to issue forth from the first monadic dot can be likened to that process by which the oak tree emerges from the acorn. It is unreasonable to assume that the oak tree manifests any qualities that were not originally in its seed. Yet that so much should have come from apparently so little is indeed a mystery. The oak tree is in the acorn in potentiality. Yet, when these potentialities come into objective existence, they seem vastly greater than their source. According to the Oriental mystics, the universe is an inverted tree. The tree is the dot from which springs forth the world tree, whose branches are the gods and whose leaves are creation. This is the great tree of the Kabbalists, and also the illusional banyan of the Hindus. 
or it exists, but a moment upon the substances of eternity and then falls back again into space. From the three mouths of the first trimurti issue powers, spiritual, intellectual, and material, divine, human, and animal, also the creative elements of air, fire, and water, air being symbolic of the intangible father, fire of the radiant sun, and water of the demiurgus who seeks with material impulses to quench the fire of spiritual light. These three are personified as the builders of the world. The father is King Solomon, the son is Hiram Abif, and the Holy Spirit is Hiram of Tyre, who furnishes the materials. Having thus established the fundamental nature of the dot, and we now pass to the constitution of the line, wherein is revealed the mystery of the Savior God of all the ages and the second principle of existence. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.